Welcome back and happy Monday. I'm Shayna, your host. I want to give a big shout out to all of my amazing supporters. You have been so great and patient with me and it's so appreciated. With that being said, I'm going to give you the case we will be covering today is filled with lust, lies, scandal, and murder. The story of Jodi Arias and the murder of her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander. Jodi Arias, born July 9th, 1980, intelligent, beautiful, goal-oriented woman, basically a blonde bombshell. In fact, she had been pretty popular in her younger days and always had a boyfriend. And she had been in a long-term relationship as of 2006. She was from Palm Desert, California, an aspiring photographer who was looking into the field of network marketing. So Jody went to a business conference in Las Vegas in September of 2006, where she met Travis Alexander. Travis Alexander was from Mesa, Arizona. He was a renowned salesman, a motivational speaker, and a devout Mormon. He was born on July 28, 1977. Growing up, Travis was abused and neglected by his mother, eventually leading to him and his siblings being removed from their mother's care and placed in the custody of their grandmother. Travis's grandmother was a Mormon, and she prided herself on making sure that Travis was a part of that community, in turn giving Travis what he felt like was a purpose. He dove in headfirst, establishing his faith and working seven days a week for God for a year, and after this, he found a job with prepaid legal, or legal shield, as some people know it. It's a prepaid contract where the provider agrees that they will provide certain legal services through a network of attorneys. Travis was top dog when he met Jody. Travis and Jody seemed to hit it off. Like Travis really liked Jody and Jody the same with Travis. Even Travis's friends said they were smitten for each other. Problem though. Jody had been in a four-year-long relationship, so what was going to happen there? Well, that was obviously an easy fix. Jody went home and just days later broke it off with her long-term boyfriend, Daryl Brewer. That is when Jody and Travis began their long-distance relationship. Jody and Travis would have long phone calls to each other. They kept in contact through email and text. They would meet up in different cities and have little road trips. All was seemingly well between the two. As stated before, Travis was deeply involved in his faith. If you don't know how the Mormon work, they are sworn to the law of chastity, meaning they cannot have any form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. The problem with Jody and Travis's relationship was that Jody wasn't Mormon. Travis would talk to Jody about his religion and tell her how things were done. After only two months of dating, Jody decided to be baptized in Mormonism and they became what you call official. In some of my research, I had found that Jody actually routinely explored the religion of men she would be dating at the time. Friends of Travis thought pretty highly of Jody for a good bit of time, but they didn't know that Jody and Travis were actually sexually involved, like they were having sex outside of marriage, which again was against their faith. As time went on, 
Travis's friends got a little weary of Jody because they claimed that Travis acted differently with her and he seemed to have a fiery sexual desire around her, even though his religion strictly forbid any sexual acts before marriage. Things became a little rocky between them and they eventually decided together to call it quits in June of 2007. Travis had expressed to his friends that Jody had changed him and that he felt guilty for breaking his faith. He also expressed that it was going to be hard for him to get back into the good graces of the church. One of Travis's friends said that Jody had shown obsessive signs early on in the relationship, which might explain why she would move to Arizona not long after they broke up. I read somewhere that she was actually cleaning his house, but I couldn't find anything to cooperate that. That being said, she was going to Travis's house at late hours and meeting for some nighttime fun. His friends had said that she would just show up over there because she knew the code to his garage. Someone even stated that she had even snuck into Travis's house through a doggy door and was sleeping on his couch without his knowledge. Weird. Friends had also expressed concerns because they claimed that Travis was pretty flippant when it came to her, saying he would be upset one minute and then getting into bed with her the next. During the time that Jody was in Arizona, Travis had actually been pursuing another woman by the name of Mimi Hall. Soon after this began, Travis's tires were being slashed and even Mimi was getting knocks on her door with no one being there when she answered. Travis did in time tell Mimi that he had a stalker, but he never disclosed the name to her. In 2008, Jody moved back to California, moving in with her grandparents in Wairika, getting a job at a restaurant for some money. On May 28th, her grandmother's house was broken into and a 25 caliber handgun was reported missing afterwards. During this time, Travis worked hard on restoring his faith after breaking it off with Jody. He was even going to be going on a trip to Cancun with his company in June. All expenses paid and he would be able to bring a companion with him. This companion was originally supposed to be Jody, but since they had long ended, Travis had asked Mimi Hall to accompany him. Mimi was excited and as the days went on and she hadn't heard from Travis about the trip, she tried calling him to check and see if, you know, they were still good to go on it. She tried to call him and text him, but with no response, which was extremely out of character for Travis because he was very family oriented. He liked being with his friends and family. So she called friends and family of Travis, but they hadn't heard from or seen him either. Friends wound up at Travis's house on June 9th. They knocked on the door, looked through the windows, and the only thing they could see was Travis's dog. Other than that, there was no sign of anyone being home. So one of the friends contacted another friend who knew the code to the garage. They punched in the code, entered the garage, went into the house through the laundry room. When they first opened the door, they got a whiff of a bad odor, but they still went in to look for Travis, just to see if he was home. They went up the stairs to Travis's bedroom and knocked on the door, and then tried to open it, but it was locked. 
they then went over and knocked on Travis's roommate's door. His roommate was home, but he hadn't he hadn't heard them knocking over his TV. He was watching TV, so he didn't hear it. They asked him if he had seen Travis, and he said that he hadn't, and he had thought that he was in Cancun, which they said nope. He wasn't supposed to leave till the next day. His roommate realized something was wrong, went and got the spare key to Travis's room, and unlocked the door. When his roommate unlocked the door, an overwhelming smell came over him, and his heart sank. As he walked into the bedroom, he seen blood. He walked into the bathroom, up to the shower, and to his absolute horror, he seen Travis's decomposing body just shoved into the shower, covered in blood. He yelled at the others to call 911 because Travis was dead. This is where I'm just shocked that the smell didn't alarm these roommates. I'm sorry, but if I smelled something like that, uh would not be able to ignore it if you have ever smelled death you know that smell is not even in the slightest bit tolerable to the untrained nose now i did happen to get a clip of the 911 call that was made and i will play that for you right now And there you have it. So during this call, I'm not sure if you were able to understand that, but during this call, they basically just said that they had found Travis dead and the dispatcher had asked if there was anyone that they knew of that was threatening or that would want to hurt Travis. And of course, they mentioned Jody Arias. Now, Detective Esteban Flores arrives at the scene just before midnight. Flores isn't your normal detective. He doesn't wear the aviator glasses and he doesn't walk around with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's clean cut. And he just happens to be Mormon himself. Him and his officers enter the home and start their investigation. The first thing that Flores finds odd is how clean and organized the house is. There isn't anything out of place. Nothing is broken. Like, literally, it looked like nothing had happened. Until they got to Travis's bedroom. There was blood everywhere. I mean, everywhere. The walls, the floor, the sink, the mirror. Everywhere. Like I stated before... Travis had roommates, like two to be exact, and they had been in the house during the time that Travis had been missing. So, of course, they were questioned, especially on how they went so long with the smell in the house. And they chalked it up to being the dishes or the laundry since it was basically a bachelor pad. Travis had been found to have been stabbed 27 times. His throat was slit from ear to ear, and he had a gunshot wound in the head right above his right eyebrow. Detective Flores and the other officers searched the house for weapons after finding a 25 caliber bullet casing on the floor at the murder scene. 
They turned up no weapons or ammunition, but what they would find next could potentially break the case wide open. They walk over to the washer, and inside of the washer they find bloodstained clothes and a camera that had been ran through the wash. The camera was waterlogged. It didn't work, but the memory card inside was in great condition, meaning if they could access those photos, that could break this case wide open and they could possibly catch the killer. So it was all bagged up and sent off to be tested. Along with the camera and the clothes, a bloody palm print was lifted from the hallway wall and that was also being sent off for testing. Flores dove into the case. He questioned Travis's friends and the roommates, asking them who would want to do this. About a week after finding Travis, Flores returns a phone call. He calls Jody Arias, who had left a message with one of his officers. During this phone call, Jody tells Flores that her and Travis were good friends and that she had heard about him passing and that she wanted to help in any way she could. Flores obviously was like, okay, cool, what have you heard? She didn't disclose much, just that she had heard of his passing and said that it was messy. She then proceeded to give him a little background into their relationship, saying that they used to date, but that they had remained friends and broke it off. Flores asked Jody when the last time she had seen Travis was, and she said the last time she had seen Travis was in person was in April and had spoken to him last on June 2nd because he knew she was going on that trip. She stated that Travis was basically guilting her because she wasn't going to see him. Okay, so a little on that, Jody had decided to take a little road trip on June 4th, but on June 2nd, she had rented a car. She was actually going to see a new love interest. His name was Ryan Burns in Utah. According to Jody, she had never disclosed that part of the trip to Travis. When Flores had asked Travis's friends who they thought would do the killing and who would want to hurt Travis, they stated that they thought that Jody Arias was responsible. Flores spoke with Jody about her whereabouts the week of Travis's murder, and she explained to them that she was headed to Utah to see Ryan Burns. Flores then co- contacted Ryan to verify this. Ryan told Flores that Jody showed up there around 11 a.m. on the 4th of June, five days before Travis was found dead. But Ryan said something that Flores found odd. Ryan told Flores that instead of Jody having the blonde hair he had always known her for, her hair had been dyed brown. But furthermore, he also told Flores that Jody had cuts on her hands, but that she claimed that she had gotten them from bartending. With that information, Flores decided to take the trip of his own right to Wairica, California to see Jody Arias. Upon arriving at the police station in Sisicue, Flores sat with Jody in an interrogation room. He told Jody that he was there because he needed answers, and she had responded, quote, I want to help in any way that I can, end quote. 
Flores questioned Jody on her whereabouts again, and she said that she had traveled down the coast, stopping and staying the night in Monterey and traveling further down the coast and then up towards Utah, but claimed she got lost and was headed in the wrong direction, so she stopped to sleep in her car. Stated that she had slept for 10 hours, but there was an 18-hour gap between the time she slept to the time she arrived in Utah at Ryan's place, and Flores points that out. She claims to have never went to Mesa, but she will learn very quickly that police have evidence that she was in Mesa and at Travis's house on the night of his murder. Do you remember that camera and the memory card that they found in Travis's washer? Well, they were able to get photos off of it, and the photos were very incriminating. Detective Flores tells Jody that he knows she is lying and that they can place her at the crime scene with these photos because they are photos of her on Travis's bed and asked if she would like to see them. Her response, quote, yeah. I mean, I'm curious, end quote. At which point, Flores slides the photo on the table with it halfway covered up. The reason for this is because the photos that were taken that night were nude photos of both Jody and Travis. Flores tells Jody that that's her in the photo, and she plays dumb and says, quote, yeah, that looks like me, end quote, to which Flores says, quote, that's you, end quote. I will be right back after this short break. So, after that conversation that Jody and Flores had over the picture, a bombshell dropped. You know that bloody palm print they lifted from the bathroom hallway? Yeah, the results are in on that too. And the results show that the palm print belongs to Jody Arias and that it had a mix of hers and Travis's blood. They also found hair at the scene, which wouldn't you know it, belonged to Jody too. So Flores asks Jody to explain the hair, the blood, and the palm print. And she does explain the hair by saying that her hair is probably on every square inch of that house, which, I mean, is a valid point since her and Travis had been in a relationship, but she hadn't seen Travis since April, so you would think traces of her hair would be removed from the sink of his bathroom. So even with the DNA and photo evidence, she still has answers as to why it was found there and denies ever being in Mesa or at Travis's, saying that the photos can be altered. I guess she was talking about the timestamps on the photo, like they can be altered, they can be changed, which is true, but there's a reason why it was found in the washer. I give it to the girl. She's smart as hell, but there is no way she is explaining this away. Flores just kept asking her to explain what had happened, saying he knows she was involved, showing her the most incriminating photos of her foot in front of the camera in a blood-soaked body, and she still denies. At this point, Flores isn't buying her story one bit, and he reads her her rights. Y'all, after her rights are read to her and Flores exits the room, Jody straight acts super weird. 
this is all caught on camera too. She starts singing, Oh Holy Night. She's talking to herself, pushing back in the chair. She shoves paper down her pants and even does a headstand. When I was watching this, all I could think was this girl has absolutely lost her marbles. After Flores comes back in the room, she's crying and they tell her they're going to take her down and get her booked. Y'all, she literally asks if she can clean herself up before her photo is taken. Why? Why is this what this girl is concerned with? You just had your rights read to you and you were about to be indicted for first degree murder. But nope, <laughs> gotta do your makeup. Sheesh. She said that it would reveal how shallow she is. And boy, did it ever. They take her in to intake, get her paperwork done, and go to take her photo for booking. And y'all, hmm, she asks how her hair looked. I can't get over this. She even had like half a smile with her head like tilted just a bit. It was more like a grammar shot than a mug shot. Jody is interrogated again the day after her arrest. This time, Flores takes a different approach, thinking maybe she will open up if a f female officer was the one questioning. Maybe someone she could relate to or have more luck. But Jody completely shuts down. The female officer says that she will ask Detective Flores to come back if she felt more comfortable talking to him. Of course, Jody wanted to talk to Flores because apparently she communicates better with men. As Flores is asking her to tell him the truth, her story changes. She claims she was taking photos of Travis in the shower when two intruders come in, a man and a woman. They attack Travis and she runs to hide in the closet, saying the man followed her and held a gun to her head. The woman followed him into the closet. The man told the woman to keep her in there and that he would be back, but she wasn't to kill Jody. Jody said that the woman wanted to kill her and a struggle ensued, and that's when she got the cuts on her hands. And apparently, these two intruders argued over Jody being killed, but the man said that that wasn't what they were there for. Jody also said that the man told her that if she ever said anything about what happened that he would kill her and her family so what this is telling me is that she walked out of there like nothing ever happened no call to police nothing and went to utah to see her newfound interest no i'm sorry but no that's just crazy you don't come out of a situation like that and not be traumatized by it not say anything it, it's just nope doesn't add up Flores contacts Jody's parents for an interview to try and get a little background on Jody. Her mother was distraught, I mean, understandably. Her daughter is being accused of first degree murder. So she went about explaining Jody, like saying that Jody was intelligent, that she would read books that, you know, she never thought of reading herself, and saying how Jody was always pushing her to go to college and better her life. Jody's dad reveals an incident that put her relationship on edge with her parents. In high school, Jody's grades had started dropping, and she ended up getting in trouble after her parents caught her growing marijuana and contacted the police. After that, they had searched her room for the first time ever, according to Jody's dad. 
Jody began to become rebellious and ended up leaving to live with a boyfriend she had at the time. Before trial even began, Jody makes a startling decision to do a jailhouse interview, which normally legal counsel would advise against that. She did an interview with Insider Edition, and during this interview, she was yet again worried about her appearance. Never mind the fact that she's about to go on trial for first-degree murder. Jody was appointed an attorney by the courts. His name was Kirk Nurmi. He was a big stocky dude, but very soft-spoken. This guy was taken back by this case and his client. He said that meetings with her were like talking to someone at Starbucks. He also had to cancel trips of his own because this case was high demand. Jody called him daily. He said that he had never had a client that would contact him daily, which he found bizarre. Jody had even asked him to look after her cat. And never in the life of a court-appointed attorney has that ever been asked. Juan Martinez was assigned to the prosecution side. He was the county attorney. He was hard up. He knew his stuff. His main goal was to prove that Travis's murder was premeditated and he was dead set on doing just that. And he did come across something that would be easy to prove that, but he didn't tell anyone anything. He kept it to himself until he needed it in trial. Smart man. Martinez is a smart man. During the trial, both Martinez and Nermi present their cases. Nermi presents self-defense after Jody claims sexual, emotional, and mental abuse along with degradation, I guess. Like, he, he was degrading. Travis was degrading to her. Martinez insists that it's premeditated first-degree murder based on the extent of the killing, like the ex- like the extent of the wounds, all of it. Like, it just, it was premeditated. The burglary of Jody's grandmother's house on May 28th is brought into the question with accusations of Jody staging the burglary to get the 25 caliber handgun that had been reported missing. Character witnesses are called to the stand. Do you all remember the long-term boyfriend that Jody broke up with after meeting Travis? Yep. He was first up in defense testimony. Daryl Brewer was asked a series of questions about Jody. Like, if she was a good person, how would you describe Jody as a person? Daryl said that Jody was compassionate and generous. They asked if Jody got along with his son, and he said that she did and that they were pretty close. But Daryl also revealed something that would help the prosecution's case. He did say that Jody had stopped by his house on her way to Utah and that he gave her two gas cans. But why would she need gas cans? Last I checked, California was dotted with gas stations. I'll go into further detail with that in just a minute. The next character witness wasn't one for Jody. She would actually be character for Travis. Lisa Andrews, ex-girlfriend of Travis Alexander. She was questioned about who Travis was as a person. Emails between her and Travis were submitted into evidence. She claims that Travis was sexually driven that he talked about sex too much, and even though Lisa had asked him to stop, he didn't listen. 
She had stated in the emails that her kisses didn't mean anything to Travis and that he only wanted her for her body. When Lisa was dating Travis, she was only a teenager and the prosecution used her adolescence to rebuke, saying that due to being young, she didn't have proper sex education and she was basically ignorant to human sexual instinct stating that Lisa expected Travis to control his penis as she passionately kissed him and that it wasn't exactly something he could do it her act if her you know her actions turned him on i mean is a valid point if she didn't like that she turned him on maybe she could have just stopped making out with him now let me make it clear. I'm not saying her feelings toward him aren't valid. I'm just saying that she could have avoided the issue if she had thought about it. If you can't tell, the defense at this point is basically trying to put the victim on trial, trying to make him out like the bad guy, which in my opinion, even if he was so sexually driven or even emotionally or physically abusive, what happened to him was a little bit overkill. The medical examiner who did Travis's autopsy said that the bullet that went through his skull would have dropped him. So if that was the first line of action, why keep going? I also wonder why she didn't call police if that were the case. On day four of the defense testimony, Jody Arias herself took the stand. First to question her was her own attorney, Nermi. She speaks of an incident that had occurred on January 22nd, 2008, where she had gone to check on Travis at his home and they were in his bedroom talking. She said that he had asked her if he could borrow like $200, but she said she didn't have it and said that he got mad at her and grabbed her and started shaking her. Then he body slammed her at the foot of his bed and called her names and told her don't act like that hurt. She said that he kicked her in the ribs once and when he went to kick her again, she used her left hand to block his leg and it caught her ring finger and damaged it, which is supposedly why that finger is now crooked. She said that Travis had convinced her that chastity law for Mormonism didn't include anal sex. Jody also claims that she walked in on Travis jerking off the photos of little boys and stated that he was a pedophile. There were some audio files that were approved to be played in court. These audio files are of Jody and Travis's sexual encounters. In them, they are saying some really dirty things and talking about, you know, touching themselves. Jody then is heard moaning and when she finishes Travis says quote sounds like a 12 year old girl having her first orgasm I like it end quote okay I have to admit no one should be thinking of a 12 year old during anything like that and he was way wrong for saying that so at this point Jody is saying that during her snapping photos in the shower the camera slipped out of her hand the camera belonged to Travis so Travis got mad and grabbed her and said that he was going to kill her when she got up she ran out of the bathroom and into the closet remembering where he kept the gun she grabbed it and headed out the other door as Travis was opening the one she came in according to Jody 
He chased her and she pointed the gun at him while holding it with both hands. Travis then lunged at her and the gun went off. She said they struggled for a bit, but she didn't want to let Travis on top of her because she wouldn't be able to get out of his hold. And that's when she claims to have blacked out or something. She claims to not remember stabbing him at all. During the cross-examination, now the cross-examination is where the prosecution questions the defendant. Anyway, during this time, Martinez questions Jody on her memory loss problems and asks if it was recent, to which Jody replies, define recent. And Martinez comes back with, I don't know, since you started testifying. She then states that it goes back further and Martinez asks how far back it goes. And her response was, quote, I don't even know if I'd call it a problem, end quote. Later, Martinez asks her about the January 22nd of 08 incident and asks that she show her crooked finger again to the jury. Martinez then shows the jury and Jody a photo that was taken of her after the incident occurred and her finger looked fine. She then tried to explain the lie away by saying that it was crooked in the photo. I seen the photo and her hand and it definitely was not crooked in that photo. And that means that her finger damage had to have been done during Travis's attack and murder. Jody pretty much held her composure through the cross-examination until Martinez pulled out photos of Travis's hands and Jody lost it and agreed that she had stabbed him and slit his throat. Jody was on the stand for 18 days. Now, someone standing trial for murder doesn't normally take the stand at all, but for them to take the stand for 18 days is absolutely mind-blowing. At this point, Jody was facing the death sentence. Her attorney's final argument was self-defense that went too far or crime of passion and that should be charged with manslaughter and nothing more. So now, 12 jurors had to decide the fate of one woman and what level of homicide she was to be charged with. First degree murder, second degree murder, or manslaughter. On May 8, 2013, almost five years after the murder of Travis Alexander, the jury decided she was guilty of first-degree murder. Now, they need to decide on a penalty. Get this, though, and it probably won't even come as a shock to most of you, but before she even got her sentencing, she stepped in front of a camera for yet another interview, telling them that she believes that death is the ultimate freedom and if she can't get life she wants death jody then stood up in front of the jury begging for her life she even showed a t-shirt that she had made that said survivor on it and announced that a hundred percent of the proceeds would go to organizations that helped people in domestic abuse situations she then pleaded for them to choose life if not for her then for her family okay I need to explain something in case some don't know. When it comes to the sentencing slash penalty verdict, the vote has to be unanimous or it is declared a mistrial, meaning that all of the jurors, all 12 of them, have to agree wholeheartedly. All of them together have to agree. 
The jurors went and deliberated, but the vote was eight to four, so the judge had no choice but declare a mistrial. Almost a year and a half later, with the same attorneys and same judge but different jury, the attorneys present their case again. Deliberation commenced, but again, it wasn't unanimous. This time, the vote was 11 to 1. A mistrial could have been avoided if the death penalty had been taken off the table, but Travis's family were stuck on wanting the death penalty for Jody. Mistrial was again declared, and the judge had to call it. Jody and Arius received a natural life sentence without the possibility of parole, and she will spend the rest of her life behind Perryville Prison for Women. Travis Alexander was laid to rest in Olivewood Memorial Park in Riverside, California. I feel like she got what she deserved. I give her some credit because she really did go all out to try to cover herself. This case shocked America. As I was researching it, I really had no idea about some of the things she had done. I don't know what I would do if I was in the shoes of Travis's family. But that's all I got for you guys today. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at criminalbeauty20 and on Instagram at criminalbeautypod.